0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: A tanker containing 30,000 tons of rice is on its way to your harbor, enough to feed the people of Haiti for a month. Meanwhile, our company will act as mediator between your government and amer so that you may settle your differences.
2: Mr. Maidston, as Minister of Finance and on behalf of all the citizens of Haiti, thank you. I think I speak for all of us when I say we We appreciate appreciate your
0: interest in Haiti and your desire to help. But with all due respect, Haiti can solve its own problems. Our country was self-sufficient in the past, and we'll be again one day. We're trying to offer a real solution. 30 years ago, Haiti produced enough rice to feed its people. Then the U.S. intervened. ...forcing us to lower our tariffs, demolishing our rice production. Now, Haiti endures hunger riots while the US enjoys a multi-billion dollar business exporting rice to us.
2: My people... Your people? Jean, Jean, if we were to just listen, this okay, is a very generous offer. you know what? Why don't you go offer. outside and
1: explain to that hungry mob how you sat here after a fat state lunch and rejected an offer that might help them feed their kids.
3: This meeting is at our end.
4: Good morning, London. It's Thursday, March 4th, 2010. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughan. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. (laughs) Oh, no, not right wing, just right. (laughs) Robert's laughing because I didn't give him his info there. (laughs) That's fine, Bob. (laughs) Okay. How you doing, Robert? Doing good, Bob. Um, You're back from holidays, aren't you? I am. We'll talk about that a little later. Part of what we're going to be talking about. Today on the show, Haiti, Chile, the Dominican Republic, London's upcoming recycling misadventure, and London's restaurant ratings misadventure are the main themes of today's show, and, and in that order, by the way. And 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation today. And, of course, you can always reach us by email at justrightchrw at gmail.com or or check our website, justrightmedia.org, in terms of getting our complete archives of all the past uh, shows, some of which we'll be referring to today um, because it's interesting what has happened in the past little while. Um... Robert, I know we're gonna. Uh, you were an actu- You were actually in the Dominican Republic um, two weeks ago. Yes. When you were absent from this show, and then funny, I was talking about the Dominican Republic and Haiti on that day, and we'll certainly follow through on that whole situation a little bit later. Um, so, you know, Robert was actually vacationing in the Dominican Republic, and that's why I hinted very subtly that day that we might be hearing about your observations, but I didn't really say where you were at the time. Um, now that opening audio edit that we just heard at the beginning of the show, um, from a show appropriately called uh, The Philanthropist. Have you ever watched it? Ever seen that one? I think I saw the first pilot episode. I think this was the ninth. I don't know if they've canceled the show yet. I I don't know what kind of, how it would appeal to a market. It's a very interesting show. It deals with philanthropy and, and a really rich guy who goes around trying to help people in poor parts of the world. And that episode was actually entitled Haiti, and it aired just weeks before the Haiti earthquake. And on that show... I was watching it, you know, it's got a very serious line through it. It gives accurate histories trying to, trying to portray situations as they are. They're going to various countries. If you've seen one, you kind of have an idea of what I'm talking no. about. But it's fiction. Yes, it's all fiction. Yeah. Um, but on that show, we learned that although slavery is technically illegal in Haiti, uh, uh, two weeks ago, when I was talking about this, we discovered that Napoleon actually reinstituted slavery in Haiti after the French Revolution. <laughs> and... Um, Interestingly, at the time this show was made, they were claiming that there's over 300,000 children in Haiti who are
5: not slaves, but privately owned as such. Isn't that Uh, ironic, considering Haiti was built on uh, slaves who revolted against uh, the, uh, the French?
4: Nothing that ironic about it. I think it's quite a natural consequence of what, what they're doing down there. And uh, we even saw the sales of mud pies on the beach, which, uh. I, which no one saw until after I, the I disaster. I couldn't believe when
5: I saw that picture in the paper of them making mud pies to actually eat, and I thought that had to be a joke, and it isn't. No. It's outrageous that what the conditions down there.
4: And apparently what they, what they can do is, apparently you can eat that and stave off hunger. It has no nutritional value, but it'll keep you from feeling hungry.
5: So it's like a Twinkie.
4: Um, I don't know. <laughs> Twinkies give me an appetite. Maybe I don't know, but and of course you hear a lot about the corrupt politics, and interestingly enough, the anti-free trade thinking, in terms of the politician there as a measure of of the government's independence. We want to be independent so so much for free trade, you know, and um, but here's what happened, as if it were prophetic. Uh, two weeks ago, again, when, you, when the show you missed, <laughs> uh, although you're going to really be giving an interesting insight to that today. I got it online, Bob. Yeah, I know. Everybody can go online uh, and get our show. Understood. Even me. <laughs> uh, but I, refu- I reviewed the uh, philosophical and economic tragedies that have been the direct cause of the worst conditions in both Chile and Haiti, not the Dominican Republic. And it was really funny because I covered a situation where Naomi Klein, you know, the arch anti-capitalist, was busy trying to prevent Haiti from being assaulted by free markets, you know. And she was, um, as it was reported in the National Post, by the way, and she attacked economist Milton Friedman, holding him somehow responsible for the, uh, you know, quote-unquote fascism in Chile. So we actually played a clip from Milton Friedman himself on that show, that was a couple of weeks ago, uh, defending against that very charge. And I think because the nation of Chile is highly fascistic, you know, its free market policies are somehow identified with its political identity, which, of course, is not the case. And that's one of the reasons often capitalism itself is associated with this this extreme right-wing fascist mentality, which is really a left-wing ideology. But listen to this. uh, This is a fascinating... We're going to be hearing a little later, in a a couple of minutes, uh, a CBC report that actually highlighted the very same issue asking how come after these earthquakes hit uh, Chile why wasn't there nearly the death toll in Chile as there was in
5: Haiti about uh, 800 as of this morning I heard versus about three hundred thousand in Haiti yes and um, here was the March 1st headline
4: from the free press um, death toll likely to climb and at that time it was more than 700 people killed so you know Uh, Only a hundred and a week later, Not, not to minimize anyone's death, but let's look at the big picture here. And this is out of Concepcion, Chile. A massive earthquake and tsunami killed 350 people in one Chilean coastal town, doubling the toll death. So that one town accounted for half of it. And the president there said at least 708 people had been killed. You say it's up to 800 now. Roughly 2 million people were affected by the quake. Interestingly, uh, Chile is the world's number one copper producer, and I was noticing in yesterday's paper, copper prices have spiked because mm. of the earthquakes there. And they note, and and one of Latin America's most stable economies, thanks to who? Milton Friedman. Okay, the guy that was that's being attacked by the left and Naomi Klein. Okay, and 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 he he acknowledges fully that Chile is not a free country. You heard that yourself. Yes. Yeah. And so. You know, it's just when people attach two different things and, 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 and associate them incorrectly. It says here, too, in the hard-hit city of Concepcion, about 500 kilometres south of Santiago, about 60 people were feared to have been crushed to death in a collapsed apartment block. A string of strong aftershocks have rocked the country, reads the paper. Well, in the, um, in the CBC report I heard it, this was no string of just aftershocks. Um... They were saying just an onslaught of massive earthquake after earthquake. And there was a dot on the map. The visual part you won't be able to see when you hear this clip coming up shortly is the is the map. And I, I, I froze it on my screen and I counted all the dots. They're talking at least 70
5: to 90 earthquakes. Not only that, they are some of the most powerful earthquakes ever recorded. That, wasn't it 8.8? Yes. On the Richter. And on the Richter, every point, uh, or is it every one, is like a tenfold increase over the one before it. So it's actually a geometric scale, exponential. yes. Uh, that's what I meant. Yeah, ex- yeah, exponential. It's, it's, scales, an, it's an
4: exponential scale, and that's that's certainly one of the things that they stressed. Now I've got this clip coming up. This is from uh, CBC News World. It was actually aired on March the first. Uh, it's it's edited down a bit. The parts I cut out were very heart wrenching. You know, you can go in on the tragedies and the poor children looking for their parents and stuff like that. And it was kind of it'll bring a tear to your eye, no question. But um, the interesting part of this, uh, of this whole situation between Chile and, and of course, um, Haiti is the incredible difference in how the damage has affected each country and what the reasons are. And we'll get to that a little bit after the show, and you're going to be talking about the Dom- Dominican Republic then. And sure. will be doing a comparison with, uh, then as well. Yeah. I brought something in that regard as well. So take a break right now. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes to continue the conversation.
2: Well, now to the other major story we're following tonight. The latest on that earthquake in Chile. Quake after quake, actually. Since Saturday, scientists have been recording what looks like a non-stop assault coming from the ocean trench just off the country's coast, felt in and around Concepcion and in the capital, Santiago. And that's where the CBC's Connie Watson is tonight. Connie.
0: Peter, Chile's president asked for international help today as the magnitude of this disaster is becoming clearer. From small fishing villages swamped by a tsunami to big cities crushed by the quake, the death toll is rising. According to the latest figures from Ottawa, 5,000 Canadians live here in Chile. Officials are still working to find them all. Peter.
2: All right, Connie, thanks very much. Connie Watson in Santiago, Chile, tonight. Ottawa says 337 Canadians are still unaccounted for. The Chilean government is doing its best to deal with the damage. No small feat since this earthquake was much stronger than the one that devastated Haiti. So why is so much of Chile still standing? Nala Ayad looked into that.
0: Even in the land of earthquakes, this was well beyond the norm. A monstrous magnitude 8.8, exponentially stronger than January's devastating Haiti earthquake. Yet it has left far fewer casualties, partly due to location, yes, but also a function of better preparation, better government and superior infrastructure. The government was working, the armed forces were working, and the private sector were working fine before the disaster stroke. And now, after the disaster all these networks were still in place that's part of the reason the Canadian government and many others are waiting before sending help much slower than January's efforts when the world was at Haiti's doorstep within hours of its urgent call for assistance Haiti though is poorer than Chile and far more dependent on neighbors like Canada which is also home to large Haitian communities you can't find two opposite situations in terms of a country being affected by the fairly similar disaster and how it impacts them, and how at least initially the government responds, which has an impact on how the international community will respond. Chile initially refused help, then as the toll mounted, changed its mind. The UN is promising to rush aid in, but even at 2 million displaced and more than 700 killed, it's nothing like Haiti's, where the death toll alone surpassed 200,000. I think the international community is shaken up a lot by it big numbers of fatalities and here you haven't seen like very big numbers of fatalities because the country was preparing for this type of tragedy and there were safety standards in place. But is there room for helping Chile while plans are still being made to build Haiti from the bottom up?
1: The idea is not to compare, not to compete. Haiti seems to be need a more like blanket uh, type of help the case of Chile is pretty focused and uh, the government has indicated very precisely what it would be needed
0: for now that includes mobile bridges satellite phones generators and field kitchens it may not be Haiti but Chile's now declared a state of catastrophe and may need much more help yet Down to 14 lines, he tried sonnet in half. <laughs> Tina. <laughs> How about we heard Baby Doc crying in his Caribbean we knew he had gone voodoo in his
3: pants? $150 question. What Caribbean nation is located on the same island as Haiti? <laughs> Matt? The Dominican
5: Republic. Well done, sir. $50. And welcome back to CHRW and, and just right with Robert Metz and Robert Vaughn. You can call at five one nine six six one thirty six hundred if you'd like to join in on the conversation. And um, Bob Is, was saying, you just "See, before see the Robert,
4: break, you, mm-hmm. could, you could win money just knowing where Haiti <laughs> was and where the Dominican Republic oh, was win, just a little while ago. Won fifty
5: dollars of Ben Stein's
4: money. Yeah, Great, that's right. Yeah. And did you also notice, and just before you get started in the, uh, I just noticed that in the clip on um, Chile, how at first they refused foreign aid. Well,
0: yeah, it's, they didn't
4: want the help because I think they know what strings come attached with that all the time until it gets bad enough
5: I didn't think they really wanted to have to accept it. There are strings attached with but there's also a national pride that gets in the way of actually helping people and I think that was part of the Haiti problem that, that was mentioned before in that Haiti clip you were talking about. That's a good point. With uh, the philanthropist, it's a national pride like we don't need anybody's help right We can do it on ourselves do it ourselves and of course people die for that national pride. Interesting observation. Yeah, But, yeah, I went to the Dominican there a couple of weeks ago. I had a great time. It's a wonderful country, very friendly people. Um, I'm not one for lying on the beach, really, though I did a lot of that. Well, oh, you, you, <laughs> you got a nice tan there. <laughs> uh, yeah, a bit. Actually, we only had about three or four days of sun, so I'm, I'm glad I got any sun at all. But, you know, I'm not one for, for doing that. But what I go down to visit another country, what I actually look at and really take an interest in is little tiny things. Like, how secure is it um, uh, crime-wise? How, how do the people live? How do they um, decorate their houses? Mm-hmm. Um, how, are, how, are the, how are the streets built? What kind of cars do they drive? What kind of phones do they use? All these little tiny things. No, the Dominican Republic is by no means a rich nation, is it? Oh, no. No, mm-hmm. by no means at all. There's a because... lot of poverty there. I think the gross domestic uh, um, per capita GDP is about $8,000 a year. So they make about $8,000 a year down there. Mind you, that well, brings the topic I wanted to talk about is relative poverty. Yes. Because being poor in Canada is a completely different uh, kettle of fish than being a poor in uh, a tropical country. If you lived in some of the um, shacks... Down, poverty being measured by income and money or by poverty, what standard? But, um, not income. I don't think you can measure poverty by income when you're when you're dealing with a tropical country versus our freezing nation. Um, like, as I was about to say, that down there, if you have a, a shack and a roof over your head... That's different from ha- living in the same shack here because here you'd freeze to death. Down there you won't. Mm-hmm. It's about 25 degrees all the time down there. Right. You know, it gets about as low as 20 degrees and as high as 32 or something like that all year round. So you've got a lot less to worry about right off the bat uh, if you're poor down there. That's not to that's not to belittle, you know, poverty down there because there's a lot of it down there, but I see people handling handling it with a gr- great deal of dignity down there. I think they're they're a happy people by and large. Um, they have their problems, but um, it's it's it was just amazing to see how s- pretty relatively safe and secure you are down there. And well, how what were the
4: people be. talking
5: about r- with Haiti right next door? Was there was that in the news as much there as it is here? Never heard a word about it down there. You're now okay. I was in the port Plata area, which is on the north coast, about a hundred miles from um, hundred kilometers actually from the Haitian border. But um, I think most of the problem down there with uh, dealing with the Haitian disaster is in. Um, Santo Domingo down in the south side of the island, so well, we were re- relatively removed from that, even though we did see a lot of Haitians up there and I was talking to our tour guides and I was saying, well, do you have a problem with the uh, influx of uh, refugees from Haiti? And he goes, oh no, no, says, as a matter of fact we welcomed them here, and I said what did they do? And he says, oh, they're over there <laughs> and I had, to, I had to explain that, we were playing golf Yeah. okay, and um, well, everybody that we dealt with was Dominican, the people who are sitting under a tarp, under a tree, were Haitian, and they were the construction workers. That's that's ah. what we bring them in for. They come in and they do our construction, they build our buildings and stuff like that, um, which is great for the Haitians, you know. And, and I guess it works out for the Dominicans as well, but there's definitely two different classes there.
4: Is that to suggest
5: that the Dominican Republic has a shortage of workers, or just because the Haitians are available so much cheaper, given the poor country they're from? I think it's the cost of the labor, obviously, yeah. because a Haitian working in the dominican is making a vast sums of money compared to what he could make in his own country mm-hmm. but a number of observations i had when i was down there bob really struck me for example the um, education now our tour guy was saying that education is not compulsory down there however i searched on the internet and of course the sources on the internet were saying that it is obligatory down there to go to school so i think that there's a, a disconnect between the laws and the laws they actually enforce because you can't force kids who are on a survival level to go to school if meaning going to school means that they can't eat Correct, so what yeah. they do down there is that uh, those kids who want to go to school and by the way almost all of them will over 95 percent, i think he was saying will choose to go to school because they know that an education will bring uh rewards in the, in the in the future but um there's two two kinds of uh shifts for schools down there you go in the morning that means that you, when you get off around noon uh you can go out and you can uh, work we either selling stuff to the tourists, or working in the cop, uh, in the um, um, the sugarcane uh, plantations, or the banana plantations, or the coffee, or the tobacco fields, um, or simply shining shoes on the street, which is something you'll never see here in London. Is poor people out there doing what well you and I would call perhaps menial jobs, because. Here, it's probably against the law. You'll probably be arrested for going out on the sidewalk to shine shoes here if you didn't have to pay some exorbitant fee to the city to try to do it. You just can't... Or to some union that wants, some to f- ho- <laughs> wants to hog the labor rights to the job. That's right. <laughs> up here, I think, to be poor means that you have to you have to accept welfare to live because the uh, government up here would outlaw any of those menial jobs, which would obviously pay less than minimum wage, here in this country, while down there, that's how you live, that's how you survive. And, and I think they take a pride in the fact that they have a good work ethic down there
4: it's interesting too because um even in haiti one of the things i never got around to mentioning when i was covering it a couple of weeks ago was that you know people were there's this thought that there's something wrong with the people there that's why they're so poor and yet they discover that wherever haitians are in any
5: other country in the world they do really well
4: Only in Haiti do they not do
5: well Haiti's problem is with their government. It's their government. There's no doubt about it. It is with their government. It's corrupt. Uh, I read one article in the Globe and Mail which basically said that if you want to just open a business in Haiti, the cost is about an entire year's salary of a Haitian down there. In other words, totally prohibitive. If you want to be in business, you can't be in business. Um, You know... You know those that's, kinds of restrictions, that's exactly, no wonder there's people the dying very, down there.
4: That's the very mentality we heard from that political leader in the opening clip. Yes. Exactly. Yes, what he because wants to of,
5: do is protect his own little fiefdom.
4: Right, and they think that somehow independence
5: means uh, no trade.
4: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> when it means it, that's exactly the opposite. You know? Another
5: thing I noticed when I was down in the Dominican was that uh, we toured a, a rum plant down there, and the Dominicans love their rum. As a matter of fact, it's a lot cheaper than food down there because they actually grow sugarcane down there. Mm. Of course, that makes the molasses, which makes the rum. Yep. So we toured a plant um, in Puerto Plata called uh, Brugal, and um, they asked, or I asked, I had a nice chat with some of the tour guides down there, and, and they asked, "In Canada, do you get Brugal?" And he says, "I've never heard of it." And I explained to them that in Ontario, the government decides what alcohol we choose to drink. (laughs) They buy it. There's one uh, basically collective that, that says that, okay, we're going to buy Bacardi and Captain Morgan and we don't want Pugol, thank you very much. And he was astounded to hear of that kind of a socialist gulag state that we live in here in Ontario where yeah. the government actually chooses what alcohol we can drink. Well, almost anybody outside the province
4: is, is, reacts that way if they haven't heard about it before. Americans will react the same way, and so will people in other provinces.
5: It's true. I mean, we take it for granted. You know, we go to liquor store, LCBO, yeah. great. LCBO stands for Liquor Control Board of Ontario. Yeah. And when you go to other places, other countries, and you see, for example, I went to Japan a number of years ago, and they actually have vending machines for beer, out on the streets and um, it's not abused you know it, it the, the fear that the Ontario government has about alcohol abuse comes from the fact that they won't let us drink it yeah but don't <laughs> forget
4: that's a misnomer to think that liquor control has anything to do with controlling liquor it has to be to controlling, controlling the people. market you No know, the marketplace yes we, we have a monopoly that's the control they're that's talking the about control. they don't care yeah. how much you drink they want you to drink all kinds of stuff well, that's right
5: <laughs> another thing health care mm-hmm. down there is very interesting now one of our tour guides was saying that um, as, as a tour operator, he obviously works for a company and he gets, with that company, health insurance. As a matter of fact, he says that a lot of the private employers down there do provide health coverage for their workers and he says that's more of a benefit to the workers than the actual wage that they earn, uh, which is not a lot by the way, about $40 a week for a textile worker, for example. And he was uh, recounting to us a, a time when he had to bring his son to a hospital and he, and he eschewed the uh, government hospital because he said, basically, in no uncertain terms, you go in there, you pay, you're going to, you're, you're not going to get any good care. You probably, you probably die. If you go to one of their state-run hospitals. Um, but he says, here's, and he, we, we drove by one. Here's a private. I applied for private clinic. They took my son. They did excellent care. Um, I was covered about ninety percent by my employer, and it was great. The one thing that I was contrasting between the Dominicans and Canadians is, Dominicans have a choice. Mm -hmm. we have no choice absolutely none you get sick you have to go to a state-run hospital basically right and you can't uh, pay on your own you cannot pay it's against the law to pay (laughs) for your own health care in canada
4: i i think about canada's future and i spent a lot of time in the 70s and of course you know in trinidad and tobago and much of what you tell me is very similar there and i and it just strikes me are we looking at our future when we look at these countries, because we're heading into deficits, um, reduced manufacturing base, uh, more competition with a a competing world where labour is much cheaper than it is here, and our unions and politicians don't really want to deal with that fact yet. Um, Eventually, health care in Ontario is going to break, and we're going to have to see these things happen, but it's just sad that we have to do it out of desperation rather than doing it, for the right reasons
5: well i think if history is any guide for example if you look at albania or the soviet union or any of those states it has to get a lot worse people have to be dying in the streets sometimes before uh, anything is done and i think we're headed down that road it might take a long time but uh well, I that they're doing that in haiti <laughs> and i don't see any big changes i'll tell you that's true but i think canadians um have a, a cultural uh, history of at least paying lip service to some of the freedoms that uh, you and i espouse here on this radio show and um i think that it's not going to get to that hopeless case that in albania where haiti is in canada and i certainly hope not no it?
4: i wasn't talking about the hopeless aspect of it just the way we might end up having to do things in our own social system you know maybe we should consider having choice in health care maybe we should consider non-compulsory education yes. maybe we should consider you got a few other things there too I think well actually to there's yet.
5: another one i wanted to talk yeah. about and that was the fact that down there of course there's a lot of poverty um, and what's interesting was um, some of the uh, some of the uh, Dominicans down there were telling me that the poor people of course can't get bank loans, right? There are obviously bad risks. He says, but what happens is that, if you buy a piece of land you own the land outright forever and you never have to pay another tax on it again ever in your lifetime
4: true property ownership
5: true property ownership not like here in london or in ontario or, ca- or parts of canada where you, you pay a tax at the time of the transaction you when you purchase tax, the land and that's it done pay a sales tax on a house or uh, actually i think it's about 16 percent uh, or, or on the land and then that's it there are no property taxes so as long as you that, long as you own that land that, yeah. that that's um that's an extraordinarily stable that's a stable you know a stable thing in a society is, too isn't it Yeah I think that's fundamental mm-hmm. to a society an absolute property right But What happens down there is you look on the side of the road and you see houses in various states of construction you'll see just um, a a foundation built or some rebar or a place with uh, four walls and no roof and he and he's explaining to us that what happens is that since he can't get bank loans the poor people build their houses and it can sometimes take up to 10 years to build a house but what they do is that when they get the money together they go out and they get the material and then they put another bit into their uh, house but when they're finished it's theirs in perpetuity. They own it, and they're very proud of it. No kidding. Whereas here, you buy your, your property, you're continually paying taxes on it, hundreds of dollars a month here in the city of London. I call, them, I call it rent, not taxes. It's, a, it's like a rent, <laughs> yeah. because if you default on your city of London property taxes, what do they do? They take they're, your house they away. They can take your house away. I, 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 that alone tells me I don't live in a free society. Oh, of course we don't live yeah. in a free society. The Dominican Republic, in many respects, is a much freer society than here in Canada. It's, it's it's strange to actually say that, but until you actually go out and you visit other countries and see what they're doing, and then try to explain to these people how we do things in Ontario or Canada, you really start to get a grasp of what a socialist gulag we live in. <laughs> Well, we're not trying to suggest that uh,
4: freedom and poverty go hand in hand. That, it hasn't been like that in the Dominican Republic. F- no, all as that a matter time, of fact, you know? if you work this hard, you can, very new.
5: if we, if you work hard like any free society, you can escape poverty. And like I said, poverty is relative down there. It's not like poverty up here. Their, their
4: their big challenge will be that with if they keep doing the right economic things and have rights instituted properly, they'll get to a point where they will become uh, much more, you know, uh, wealthy. And then they'll start voting for socialist programs that will
5: destroy it all. (laughs) Governments tax as much as the people will allow them to tax. Down there, the income tax is about 10%. And when I heard that and I told them what we pay in taxes up here, they were just like astounded. You pay that much in taxes? Well, they do
4: have an income tax, eh? Oh, yes, they do. About
5: 10%. and, um, and, And the sales tax. And that's about it other than that then um no i have great high hopes for the dominican republic i can see them the way they're continuing right now to become a very prosperous part of the uh, caribbean well maybe their neighbor might take a look at that
4: and you know learn something the contrast is amazing it's the bottom of the half hour we're at the bottom of the hour right now Uh, robert we've got to take a break here when we come back on the other side we're switching topics dramatically we're going to be talking about london's um uh, latest uh, bid into the whole green situation buying or getting involved in this whole um, recycling issue uh, which I like to call a waste from energy project <laughs> because that's exactly what it is first thing we're going to hear from though is a little history of recycling before the break and uh, for that we can thank penn and teller for not only providing the humor but also amazing array of facts and statistics and and issues um, from their show uh, penn and teller's Uh, bs and we'll be back right after this break
1: meet some of the faces of today's recycling movement don't laugh we all believe this stuff everybody's got this great green.
0: i'm worried that we're just getting rid of all our natural resources there's be nothing left
1: recycling
4: definitely will save money you know saves us a lot of problems with having to you know reproduce some things that we could
3: just use again
0: i definitely recycle in fact i'm like the recycle queen
3: most of what makes people feel good about recycling is based on misinformation.
1: Daniel Benjamin is a professor at Clemson University and the author of a landmark paper that put to rest eight great myths about recycling that we all bought, hook, line and sinker, from the environmental movement.
3: They've been told from the second or third grade that recycling is wonderful for the environment, that it saves resources, that it's going to save humankind from itself. And so, based on this misinformation, they think they're doing the right thing.
1: Recycle-mania started in
3: 1987
1: with this barge, the Mobro 4000. Some guy got an idea to make money, buy space in a Louisiana landfill for some New York trash for less money than it cost to dump it locally. On the way, he tried to dump it in North Carolina, because it's closer, but North Carolina didn't want it. So the Mobro spent six weeks going up and down the East Coast looking for a place to dump its Yankee muck. And thanks to a rabid media, it became an icon for all that was wrong with the environment.
3: People reacted to this with, and perhaps understandably so, they thought, well, if there's not room for a single load of trash from New York City, surely we must be running out of landfills.
1: People thought our garbage would bury us alive. And thus, the modern recycling movement was born. Fueling the recycling movement was the Environmental Protection Agency. Which, in a widely read 1989 paper titled, An Agenda for Action, said, recycling was absolutely vital. So they set up national recycling guidelines, and this is the guy who did it. I set a national goal while I was at EPA of recycling about 25% of the nation's trash. I am Jay Winston Porter, former EPA assistant administrator. It turned out it was a pretty good number because the nation in about five years then went from 10 percent recycling of all our trash to about
2: 25 percent and now today we're at almost 30 percent. Recycling is an economic, environmental and a very sociologically positive uh, uh,
0: activity. Since it saves
4: resources Uh, from having to
0: be um,
4: extracted from the earth, it saves energy inputs from having to manufacture new products from virgin materials. The net economic benefit of recycling is as great as the net environmental benefit
2: of recycling.
1: Recycling may be the most wasteful activity in modern America. Waste of time and money, a waste of human and natural resources. I know what you're thinking, that quote's from some evil right-wing, empire, capitalist, the earth publication. Yep,
3: a New York Times. In almost all communities, it is more expensive to recycle than it is to landfill. There are often a lot of subsidies thrown on the recycling side, and that hides the true cost.
1: Ah, subsidies. That's when the government takes tax money from you by force, all tax money is taken by force, and spends it on something you wouldn't be willing to pay for in the free market. Subsidies support questionable or obsolete businesses in the name of the public interest because the government doesn't trust us to do what's good for us on our own. Recycling is supposed to save money and resources, right? Right. But if it really saved money and resources, you'd be paid for doing it. That's the way money works. But it costs you $8 billion a year. That's your $8 billion. And really, that's nothing. We spend $300 billion paying farmers to grow crops that don't sell very well. What's another $8 billion of your dollars on that doesn't work? What does it actually cost your local municipality to pick up the regular unsorted garbage of putting your bins and just throw it away? like in the landfills. My average might be something like $50 or
3: $60 a ton. Or
1: 50 or $60 a ton to throw regular garbage away. And how much does it cost your local government to have men come to your house and take the recyclables away? I, I, I think my sort of rough number, it's about $150 a ton. So it costs your local government three times more money to recycle your trash than it costs them to just throw it away. But don't believe us. We wouldn't. Here's someone who actually knows.
0: And the whole idea of recycling is there's a net profit to the government. Well, for 15 years, New York has had a net
1: loss every year. I'm Angela logan Mussini, Director of Risk and Environmental Policy at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. This year, it's close to $33 million. That's a significant sum. That's more money than I have on me. Hey, isn't that enough to rebuild the Times Square porn theaters? If recycling is such a failure, why is it that we have between nine
4: and 10,000 community recycling programs uh, around the country? Um, why is it that it's a multi-billion dollar industry?
1: Because people like you who make their living off it continue to perpetuate bullshit. And still people trust you. They think you did your homework.
4: Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you till the top of the hour. They haven't done their homework, Robert. Not on this one.
5: And boy, they ha- or they have, and they are not explaining it to people.
4: Well, that may be, but judging from the articles I've just read in the free press, I have to think it's it's the other. Uh, you know, I think people confuse cleaning up garbage, which we can do something about, but we don't, <laughs> with cleaning up the environment, which we can't do something about, but we do. <laughs> okay, And... You know, when we say we're cleaning up the environment, we generally mean one of two things. We're either taking an existing environmental problem and moving it elsewhere in the environment, (laughs) because we can't take it out of existence or off the planet, or maybe neutralizing some toxic property, but that's not the main thing. Or we're ceasing production of that item entirely. That's really what the whole green movement is, is, you know, looking for. But I just couldn't believe when I read Randy Richmond's article in the London Free Press on the 26th of February, recycling plant decision expected uh, to be followed up with a plant gets okay. But um, in this article, it refers to a $22 million recycling facility to be built by Miller Waste Systems Incorporated to quote, build a regional blue box recovery center in the city. End quote. And as usual, you know, Jay Stanford, the city's chief environmental propagandist, is quoted. Uh, mm-hmm. Only days before a decision of such monumental consequence, In referring to information about the deal, he says, quote, over the last couple of days, we've tried to get additional information. We don't know if we'll be able to answer everything. End quote. And the facility would be privately operated, but owned by the city. Sending blue box material there would increase the life of the landfill, save London taxpayers money, and bring funding from municipal blue box recyclables, proponents say. And, of course, those are three complete, total, and utter myths that just ain't going to happen. Miller Waste has warned after 20 months of waiting, it'll have to raise the project's price if there are further delays. So there you get that last-minute warning. You know, do it now. Although it's probably true. I mean, prices always go up, don't they? They do. Council first approved the plant, get this, with little debate last June, with the belief, belief, note that's the word they got, that more than $15.3 million of the cost would come from stimulus spending. Okay? So Harper started all of this. Uh, but that f- funding never came. So the city, instead of using that money, just says, well, okay, we'll revise the plan, we'll use $17.6 million, which is $2 million more than the stimulus funding, from the federal gas uh, taxes for the plant. So they're just bouncing around from pinball boing, 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 going like this, trying to finance this thing. And of course, Ontario may have plans of its own. Key, key to the province's waste diversion strategy is making producers responsible for keeping the waste from their products out of the stream bound for landfills. So, <laughs> they've got two two levels of government working against <laughs> each other on this. Councillor Joni Bachelor said she had questions too. The main question is, where do the taxpayers get the best program and value for the money, she said. And of course, that too is a false question, because taxpayers get zero value. I mean, as a taxpayer, you, you got nothing. <laughs> try try cashing it in, cash in your 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 credits, you know. So, later on, March 1st, the paper reports John Miner, London Free Press, recycling plant gets the okay. Now they've decided to go ahead with the $22 million recycling plant. Now it's going to be largely paid for with money from the federal gas tank. Uh, or gas tank, gas tax. <laughs> it's a tank, all right. right. Um, Councillors brushed aside concerns that the province could change recycling rules within months. Just brushed them aside, you know, no reasons given. Counselor Cheryl Miller said, I support the concept. Oh. But I don't believe the time is right. <laughs> <laughs> she says that about every issue. She said that about... It's uh, unbelievable. Talk about fence-sitting. <laughs> and, and people think she's on the right all the time. From yeah. my perspective, there's no downside, said Councillor Joni Batchelor. Okay, so she can't even see a single negative to this. In addition to handling London's recyclables, the plant is expected to process recyclables from area municipalities. Lowering the cost of operation. Well, this is just utterly nonsense. And, uh, of course, we'll be hearing a little bit more about that whole process of actually what happens in recycling from Penn and Teller in a few minutes. And, um, you know, the bigger issue, too, is that all of this is being done, supposedly, to avoid putting garbage in landfill sites. And yet landfill sites are not a problem. They're the cheapest way to do everything. They're the most economical, the most, the best for the environment, uh, the best for production, the best for future use. And yet we go through, through these insane,
5: idiotic government waste. It's just pure waste, making waste from energy. And as you alluded to before... It turns out that everything that is recycled will end up in a landfill at one point in time anyway. Because you can't destroy it. it. You can't beam it off the planet. It will end up in the landfill some point in time. You're just delaying the inevitable.
4: Even there. But even do you, wanna, do you want to recycle it? You know, there's a, there's a psychological thing about recycling, and I understand it. Um...
5: It and makes people feel good. Don't
4: well, deny that. It does. No, but there's a, I think there's a, there's a more logical reason why people might feel that way. Um, and it's, it's the macro versus the micro. In your home, recycling is a totally different situation. I don't throw even a tin out if I can use it later. Of course. Okay. You're saving I,
5: yourself money. But
4: I'm not doing that out of... Not even for one second consideration of the planet or the landfill sites or green greenhouse gases. I'm doing that for my own purposes. I was looking in 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 one of these fluff articles in the Free Press, they said one of the items that people hoard the most, one of the what do you think one of the top hoarded items? Paper
5: plates, plastic spades. plastic bags, actually. Plastic bags, yeah.
4: yeah. (laughs) And now you gotta pay for them. And and then you know we're always talking about putting them in the landfill sites. Uh I can tell you a hundred stories about how that's backfiring on the landfill sites. But uh, John Stossel, in his book um, Myths, Lies, and Downright Stupidity, back in 2006, uh, you know, dealt with the myth we're drowning in garbage. And he says, no, no, there's plenty of room. And he, ta- he tells the very same story we just heard from Penn and Teller about 1987, the barge that went down, you know, down the river with the New York trash and all that stuff. I remember that, by
5: the way, back in that. Uh, time. I
4: do, too. And he says, television news crews rushed to the scene before you could say Fabricate a prices to raise money. <laughs> <laughs> Activists around the country had added the garbage crisis to their agenda. Said Cynthia Pollack of the World Watch Institute, we are now approaching an emergency situation. And that got more publicity. But it wasn't true, says Stossel. The EPA says that although some cities have to ship garbage to other states, overall, landfill capacity is actually increasing. Dump operators keep finding new ways to pack the trash tighter, make it decompose faster, pile it higher. Some landfill owners actually compete for trash. They make money off it by putting grass on top of it, building ski slopes, golf Mm -hmm. courses, you name it, right? And America, mind you, all these stats we've been hearing, this is America's situation, on it, you know, yes. in terms of the budgets and everything. And America has huge amounts of open space. Not that we're going to fill it all with garbage. All of America's garbage, get this, for the next 500 years could fit into one landfill 100 yards high. That's it. <laughs> yep. For 500 years. And that's based on our rate of pouring stuff in there now which is obviously going to slow as technologies increase mm-hmm. as production gets more efficient
5: because efficiency is all about economics and so economics
4: is what's going to Canada's landfill
5: size will be one tenth of that because we're one tenth the population
4: that's exactly right
5: and that's so. a very small area Exactly. And yet our
4: cities want us to spend just fortunes and fortunes on, on nonsense. I saw this article about Tim Hortons in the paper yesterday. Did you see it? Oh, about, I did. That was roll, that's roll, hilarious. Roll up, roll up the rim contest criticized as wasteful. Consumers don't win by rolling up the rim, says Franz Hartman, executive director of Toronto Environmental Alliance. We'd like to see a lot fewer coffee cups being used. Use I don't think he means... He, he doesn't mean that. He means being produced. Yes. yes. see, um, And he says it's a pretty significant waste of resources. The which tragedy is, about that article, Bob, is that Tim Hortons bought into that and apologized. Thank you. That was my very next point. And this is why I just write off business as being totally anti-capitalistic. They don't even know how to defend themselves. They're slitting their own throats. They, they're, they're slitting their own throats. The public looks at these meager, crappy, grayish, you know okay, we'll take a look at it. Even though they know damn well that what they're doing is the best thing for the environment, they just won't stand up for themselves. And um, that might be why we've never had a business of any sort ever support our cause. I don't know. (laughs) Because, boy, they love those government handouts just as much as the socialists do. Hey, we're going to take another break now, and uh, Penn and Teller are going to explain to us just how silly this whole recycling situation is and how much of a manufacturing process it is. And on the other side, a couple of comments on these... um, Restaurant ratings that London is going to be doing, which uh, I think I have some comments I just haven't heard anybody express. I don't think they've been looking at this situation in the right way at all.
1: But we'll deal with that after this break. We have some good news for you. You can feel good about recycling aluminum cans. In this one instance, recycling is actually a good thing to do. It costs less to take old cans and make new ones than it costs to dig up bauxite and make new cans. It works. It works because there is real money in aluminum. People are already going through your trash for it. No one has to trick you into recycling cans, but what about plastic?
5: A plastic
0: water jug or soda bottle uh, may be only worth on the market uh, a fraction of a penny, but there are a number of companies, and they're multiplying almost monthly, who are making a profit taking recycled plastic and selling them to industry.
1: And what fine things, what indispensable items does industry make with this plastic?
2: But they start out by taking these, these bottles and they grind it up. Hi, I'm Craig Hampel and I'm the recycling coordinator for the city of Burbank. But these pellets
4: can be made into shoelaces. Here's a shopping bag. Here's a t-shirt. And it's nice, it's soft. They can mix it with cotton to give it a
1: nicer feel. It would feel a lot nicer if you gave us back the $8 billion the government ripped out of our paychecks okay so you can make some cool things with recycled plastic but here's the unromantic truth you can make better quality less expensive versions of that if you just start from scratch when that's no longer true there will be money for street people in picking up plastic now what about the cornerstone of the environmental movement saving trees environmentalists are always screaming about trees
0: Listen, every time you recycle more you're avoiding uh, extracting trees from endangered and virgin forests.
1: They love that word, endangered. They say it as much as we say bullshit. They also love to say virgin, and, and who doesn't? Today most paper is made from trees grown specifically for the production of paper. You follow that? Paper comes from trees so we grow trees to make paper. Like we grow potatoes to make yummy french fries. Same thing. Are potatoes endangered because we use them? Are there virgin potatoes anywhere? Not if Mr.
3: Potato Head has his way. Most of the virgin pulp that goes into paper is grown on tree farms. And those tree farms wouldn't exist unless we use that virgin pulp to make paper. See, even our side likes to say virgin. There's been some research uh, on this done in various places around the world. And the, and the evidence is, is, that, is that recycling does not save trees. Is there anything about that you didn't understand? Nope. We hear you. And we have three times
1: more trees today than we did in 1920. Trees are a renewable resource. And get this, recycling paper is bad for the environment. Recycling is a manufacturing process. It starts with this pile of paper. A truck picks it up, a second truck, not the one that was already in your neighborhood picking up your garbage, and it goes to a recycling center, which uses energy and makes real polluting smoke. Anyway, more papers put in another truck and taken to a paper mill, sometimes hundreds of miles away, near a forest, where it's de-inked and bleached, and that leaves behind a scummy chemical sludge. What the f*** do you do with that? Then the paper pulp is turned back in newspaper on equipment that belches more smoke into the air. So if you really want to protect the environment, the only way to really recycle the newspapers is by reading the same one over and over again. Same bullshit, different day. Of course, if you just keep watching TV and don't buy things on paper, they'll stop growing trees for paper, and then there will be fewer trees. You know, if we all stop eating yummy french fries, there won't be any more virgin potatoes grown. You want more trees? Waste more paper. Really? I think it's amazing the way restaurants have changed in this country over the last 20 years.
0: Yeah, I mean, what with gastropubs and all-by-one, things like that, it's just so easy
1: now. Are you ready to order, sir? Sorry, mate, um, haven't really had a look yet, but um, can we order a bottle of the House Red to be going on with?
2: Mate. The House Red. To be going on with. Where the hell do you think you are? Do you even know what the House Red is? Are you even an expert on wine? Because if you're not, I don't know on what basis you venture to order it. Sorry, what happened to the friendly Australian girl that used to work here? She's gone, sir. They've all gone. (laughs) And
4: that's what I think is going to happen to a lot of customers who get some of these color coatings on their restaurants. What do
5: you think, Robert? I think so, and and you've actually explained to me a very interesting... um, perspective on this rating system that I never thought about. and Why don't you tell us a bit about that? You
4: know, that? I've been hearing other commentators talking about the whole restaurant ratings should they have cards in the windows and all that and, and it's all about regulating the industry and really it's, it's all done by the health department too presumably. But really the health department's job is to protect the consumer, not to run restaurants. So to me the question I was asking in this whole deal is where does the consumer stand? Like is it safe to eat in a restaurant okay. with a yellow sign? If if we get oh, sick, no. does the yellow sign designate that the health department right? will distance itself from any responsibility is? of protecting the consumer right. public? That's the message I get. They're saying go in on on your own uh, on your own, <laughs> you know, caveat emptor type mm-hmm. type of thing, right? You you might get sick, and if we do consent to getting sick or whatever, you know,
0: no, I don't. If,
4: is that what's happened? Have we actually consented <laughs> by going in? If if these establishments right. have already duly warned us, so to speak, you know, so I look at it this way: either a restaurant is safe or it's not safe, right? One or the other. seems to me to be a black and white issue, but any attempt to walk a middle line on this campaign is just kind of a power trip. I, I, I don't see it being anything else. Um, And and worse, I have yet to hear any other newscaster or commentator or editorialist even raise the point, and it's the only issue as far as I'm concerned. I don't need to be told that something's uh,
5: sort of safe. (laughs) That's right. Now You made me start thinking about the justice of this. If the government comes out there and is saying that this particular restaurant left a dirty rag on the counter or it isn't washing up properly or there's no hairnets used and all that, where is the right... To face your accuser, where's your right to appeal these decisions that are affecting your business when they post them on the Internet saying these things are happening? You have no choice um, but to agree to them because there's no place to say that, hey, hold on a minute, this didn't happen. This is a false accusation. Where can you do that? The damage has been done. Your business is probably going to be sure. affected by these uh uh, yellow cards or these things on the web, and yet you, you can't say anything about it. A- and the other issue, too, is that despite
4: all the, the, the most stringent regulations, particularly in the city of Toronto, which has been doing stuff like this for ages, uh, you'll still get reports of restaurants that are just, you know, they shouldn't be open. Absolutely, by any standard. Some people, you couldn't even walk into them. You wouldn't want to, you know, there's no way. And then, worst of all, you get this unnecessary bureaucracy and regulation and all this municipal work for, for all the municipal leeches that want to run websites and go around inspecting and doing all that kind of stuff. Yes, if you've got infractions and they're repeated, maybe you've got to find them, but you don't go around publicizing them think of you know we don't even publish the names of young offenders or, or victims of crime or uh, of uh, you know for fears of the danger of injustice that such publicity might unfairly give to a situation yet business people are not treated with anywhere near such common courtesy uh, dignity or respect and the funny thing is i can understand i've heard some people in the restaurant business who clearly keep very clean businesses as it should and they don't really they're not worried about this mm-hmm. right and so falsely they believe that it's a good thing and that it helps the marketplace and and filters out a bit of the of the competition uh it it just doesn't work that way and the rules that you think are going to be helping you today will be the ones they'll be using against you tomorrow it's just been the pattern all the time and this idea of public disclosure that's just a tool to intimidate I mean, uh, we'd like to see a little more of that in our justice system, wouldn't we? Public disclosure, some of the fines that people get after they've been been convicted and you don't hear enough about them, you know? In in a court of law with
5: objective rules uh, and and an opportunity to face your accuser, to actually post a defense, none of that exists in this particular uh, witch hunt.
4: Exactly. And to me, if it's safe to eat in a restaurant, the restaurant should be open. If it's not safe, it should be closed. Point, period. Uh, That's uh, it. This is such a black-and-white issue. We don't need cards. We don't need a rating system. All that does is leave the consumer guessing. And you can go to your websites, and you're still reading a subjective report by a subjective person who wrote a
5: subjective comment on something. Yeah. I, I, uh, I went to uh, the know, website the other day to look up my favorite restaurants, right? Okay. And I noticed some infractions, some non-critical infractions. And I'm going, so what? I still love eating there. I know that they're clean. Uh, and I see that some of the best restaurants in town have some infractions. And I'm going, so so what do you judge by this nothing right it becomes a (laughs) meaningless exercise for
4: bureaucrats to spend your money and that's all it is another make work project just perfectly in fitting with even all the green stuff but this is the health department who's also getting into that issue we're out of time for today isn't that true hey john (laughs) i think he says yes we've got to go but let's get out of here now and hopefully. You will join us again next week. You're going to be here next week, Robert? I will. Well, that's good. Until then, you know what to do, eh? Be right, stay right, act right, and, of course,
1: be right here. I'll do my best. Good. <laughs>
0: right,
1: I've had just about enough of you talking to me like this. I'd like to see the manager. How can I possibly
2: introduce you to the manager? You are not shaved, you're not wearing a tie, and you hold your ladle like a pen. Now take your quality but gratifyingly mute girlfriend
0: and get out. <laughs>